Well, last month, uh, I started with a, a three-part series, albeit spread out over three months, but three parts uh, that are following the title, uh, Our Sending God. We took a look at uh, the mission of Jesus Christ, search and rescue. Uh, we dived into the conversation, the, the, the moment that Jesus and Zacchaeus met each other and spent the day together. And we took a look at that uh, verse, Luke 19, 10, where Jesus explains his mission. And he said, uh, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to be taking a look at the prophet Isaiah and how he is being sent to the lost people of Judah. Now, the prophetic ministry of Isaiah uh, stretches through four of the kings of Judah. There was Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Uh, that ministry produced numerous oracles of judgment, uh, partly because the people of God of that day in Judah uh, were prone to irreverence and disobedience, frequently falling out of favor with God and suffering the consequences for so doing. But still, God always preserved a remnant of his people who were marked for redemption, marked for restoration. God always remained faithful, even when his people did not. Now, the full scope of Isaiah's ministry uh, is not our purview this morning. We're going to be zooming in on one particular brief but profound moment in the life and ministry of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, it's a moment that would affect Isaiah for the rest of his life. It's the moment when God allowed him to see into the throne room of heaven. It's the moment when Isaiah was called by God to be a prophetic messenger. It's the moment when Isaiah was sent to the troubled people of Judah. Our God is a sending God, and Isaiah was his sent messenger. So we're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Most of the verses of this passage were just sung uh, through the last song that we sang together. And the word of the Lord says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. 
And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. The word of the Lord. Now, what are we to make of the fact that the book of Isaiah, uh, which covers 66 chapters, gives us five chapters of Isaiah's prophetic proclamation before we get a look at his calling to be a prophet sent from God in chapter 6. You know, is the chronology out of order? Uh, Was Isaiah prophesying before he was called to be a prophet? Uh, Do chapters 1 through 5 give us a picture of Isaiah as an apprentice prophet? practicing to be a prophet from the call of God, on-the-job training, as it were. Well, what is the story? Well, one thing we can be sure of, whatever's going on before this in the ministry of Isaiah, something new is coming. There's a new season that's going to elevate the ministry of Isaiah. He's going to need a gigantic dose of God's power, and he's going to need an unmistakable, unshakable certainty concerning the profound nature of his prophetic calling, a cosmic spiritual stake in the ground that he can hold on to for a lifetime. So God is giving him a peek behind the curtain. God is giving him a window into the very throne room of heaven. So, let's take a look at this moment in the life of Isaiah. We're told in the first verse that in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. Well, King Uzziah was the first king that was in power when Isaiah began his prophetic ministry. Now, when did he die? Well, he died around 750, 740 B.C. Uh, This would have been about two decades before the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered and the best and brightest of Israel were carted off into exile. This was about 175 years before the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered and the best and brightest of Judah were carried off into exile. And this would mark a a gigantic change of administration. You know, in our country, we have a change of administration every four years, every eight years, and it can be a time that's very unsettling, particularly if we're moving from one party to another. But imagine the change of administration after a king who has been in power for over 50 years dies. Upheaval, all kinds of changes would be going on. And this is the very year, the death of Uzziah, when we find Isaiah experiencing this moment in the throne room of God. He says, I saw the Lord. Well, this is a a theophany, a a visible manifestation of deity. In this case, God himself. He's seated on a throne. This is a seat of God's governance, of his power, of his oversight 
over the nation of Israel. This is the seat of judgment. Now, we have another picture of the throne room of God in the book of Revelation. This was a vision that came to the apostle John, and he says this about God in his throne room. Revelation 20, beginning with verse 11, he says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now, we're told by Isaiah that the train of the Lord, the train of the robe of the Lord, filled the temple. This is a heavenly temple, and what we're seeing here is a manifestation of the very presence of God. Psalm 11 uh, says this, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. Uh, Noted Old Testament commentators, Kyle and Dalich, say this. God gave Isaiah an insight into the invisible world. The invisible world is being made visible for Isaiah to see. Now, when we come to the Gospel of John, we find that this apostle quotes from the book of Isaiah. And not just from the book of Isaiah, he quotes specifically because of this vision of Isaiah. We find this in John chapter 12, verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. The apostle ends this description by saying, Isaiah said these things because he saw God's glory and spoke of him. This is that stake in the ground that Isaiah had to hold on throughout his life. And now, hundreds of years later, the Apostle John is quoting from Isaiah. Why? Because Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord. It's an experience that not very many people had. And when we get to verse 2, we come into these magnificent creatures known as the six wing seraphim, angelic creatures. The verse says this, above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Well, what's going on here? Well, imagine this, with two they covered their faces, why? 
to hide themselves from the glory of God. They don't take a look at God in his full glory. Now, we'll take a look at why in just a moment. With two, they covered their feet. Well, this is an example of humility, an example of concealment, shielding the body. And with two, they flew. In other words, they had mobility. They had the capacity to follow through with God's instruction. Whatever God uh, assigned them to do, they were able to get there because they could fly. And what were they saying? Verse 3, one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, I've mentioned before how significant repetition is uh, in this culture. When something is repeated, it's done so for emphasis. And in this case, it's a double emphasis because it's repeated twice. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, here's the thing. Isaiah is not just seeing the sights of heaven. Isaiah is hearing the sounds of heaven as the seraphim uh, cry out with their antiphonal voices, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, this is not the case of a choir in a very unified uh, performance of a particular piece of music. This is more or less a a random and uh, specific calling out of the seraphim one to another to another to another all throughout the spans of the temple, throughout the spans of heaven, perhaps. In other words, there's a cacophony of sound that's being heard, and Isaiah is in the midst of this. Now, I am going to take a little risk here this morning. I hope you're up for this. I mean, I feel like I'm looking at Mount Rushmore here. It's rather quiet out there. Okay, but we're going to make some noise. All right, here's how this is going to work. We're going to say this together. Now, let's just get started with a little rehearsal. So I want you to say with me, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Once again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. All right, now we're going to divide up into two groups. Those of you on the left are going to be group number one, and you will be group number two. So group number one is going to start this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and when they get to the second line, this group is going to come in with holy, holy. Think row, row, row your boat, okay? This is, this is not that complicated, okay? But once you get started, I want you to continue for three repetitions, okay? All the way through three times. Are you ready for this? Here we go. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
right, okay, we're going to do this one more time, but I'm going to divide you into four groups, and you're going to do this in Hebrew. Okay, I'm kidding. But you get the idea. The sights and the sounds of heaven. I just can't imagine for this single solitary little man standing in the midst of all this, what this might have been like. The sights of heaven, the sounds of heaven. The whole earth is filled with his glory. You see, God is so expansive. Everything is being filled up. It's a hint of God's omnipotence. It's a hint of God's omnipresence. And just as the train of his robe filled the temple, the whole earth is filled with his glory. The bottom line is God cannot be contained. Now, regarding this verse, uh, John Calvin remarks, the chief end of our actions be the glory of God. I love that little phrase. The chief end of our actions be the glory of God. And I think, uh, I think what we can understand from this is that John Calvin must have been up on his catechism. So he got the first question. He got the first question right. All right. Now Solomon gives us a, another picture uh, with this in Psalm 72. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be the glorious name, his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. And by the way, Solomon was active several hundred years before Isaiah came on the scene. So we have a theme here that's stretching throughout time among the people of God. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Now, the plot thickens. We get to verse 4, and it says this. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So, you know, you see how this is building? We've got sights. We've got sounds. Uh, now the building is shaking, and we're finding that the, the house, the temple, heaven is being filled with smoke. Now, think about this. How loud and powerful would these voices have to be to shake the very foundations of the thresholds? This must have been ear-splitting and, and, and shaking as those low frequencies began to rumble and make the building shake. Now, our family has lived a lot of places uh, as we've traveled around doing ministry over the years. We lived in Southern California for a while, so we know what earthquakes feel like. We lived in Florida for a season. We know what it looks like in the aftermath of a hurricane. We lived in Phoenix, Arizona for seven years. We know what, it, what it's like to see a 4,000-foot-high wall of sand and dirt uh, blowing in from the south across the desert that envelops the city and reduces visibility down to about six inches. 
power, power on display. And that's what we're seeing in the midst of this vision of Isaiah, an earthquake. In this case, a heaven quake. Heaven itself is shaking. And what's going on with the smoke? Well, in order to understand the significance of that, we need to go way back. We're going to go all the way back to the book of Exodus. In fact, this is the final chapter of the book of Exodus, Exodus 40, the very last passage, beginning with verse 34. Uh, hear this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Sound familiar? And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken out. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Referring to the journeys of the people of God moving toward the promised land. So for centuries, clouds and smoke had been associated with the presence and the power of Almighty God. Now, so far, the focus has been on God. But now when we get to verse 5, the focus is going to shift now to Isaiah. So here's the question. What happens when unholiness is confronted with pure holiness? What does that look like? Well, I want to drop into uh, a passage from Isaiah much later in chapter 64, beginning with verse 1. Isaiah proclaims, on that, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, uh, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So what do we see in verse 5 of chapter 6? Isaiah says, woe is me. In the midst of the sights, the sounds, the shaking, the smoke, Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, 
For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, the pure lips and pure worship of the seraphim and the holy, holy, holy God who sits before him highlights the impurity of Isaiah's lips. Now think about this. What is the role of a prophet? The role of a prophet is to proclaim the word of God. And how do you proclaim the word of God? You speak through your lips. And so what Isaiah is realizing here is this instrument, this this vehicle through which I proclaim the very word of God is an unclean vehicle. It's a holy message that's being delivered by an unholy messenger. Now, furthermore, he remarks that his eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Well, what's at stake here? Why why is that a problem? Well, once again, let's go back and check in with Moses. Exodus chapter 33, beginning with verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. In other words, hundreds and hundreds of years before the coming of Isaiah, Moses is longing to have that experience that Isaiah is having in chapter 6. He says, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Man shall not see me and live. See, Isaiah knows about this. And he has seen the Lord. Isaiah thinks he's going to die. That's what he's facing. The Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. This is why Isaiah is concerned about the fact that he has, in fact, seen the glory of God. Isaiah is in deep trouble. Uh, The New Living Translation says it like this. It's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Isaiah is in deep trouble, but God has a solution. God has a plan. It's a plan of cleansing. It's a plan of forgiveness and redemption. It's a plan of commissioning. 
It's a plan to send his prophet Isaiah to this people with unclean lips. Isaiah is not going to die. Isaiah is going to proclaim life, even as he proclaims judgment. Not because of who he is, not because of his holiness, but because of who God is, because of God's holiness. So as we come to verse 6 and 7, God's sacramental plan unfolds. It says this, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. What's going on here? Well, I refer to this as a sacramental plan. Here's why. What we see in these two verses are foreshadowing uh, of both baptism and the Lord's Supper. How so? Well, the seraphim takes the hot coal from the altar and touches the lips of Isaiah. It's a cleansing. See, Isaiah is being ceremonially cleansed. This is an outward sign of an inward reality, similar to what we experience in baptism in centuries to come later. And how is it, how is it that Isaiah's sin is taken away, that, that his sin is atoned for, that there is no guilt? What makes that happen? Well, where does atonement come from? It comes from the person of Jesus Christ. It comes from the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. So when Isaiah's sin is being taken away, when its sin is being atoned for, when his guilt is being removed, what we are seeing here is atonement, the same atonement that we celebrate when we gather around the Lord's Supper the broken body, and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now, Isaiah had already been serving God with his lips, but a new assignment is coming, an enlargement, an expansion. Isaiah's woe is going to be turned to Isaiah's go. And so we see this in verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Now, in closing, I want you to think of this verse 8 as an ordination vow of sorts, a vow of commitment. So here's a question for you. Whose voice is now being heard? We've heard the voices of the seraphim. We've heard the voice of Isaiah. Now we're hearing the voice of God himself. And he says this, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Now, if the voices of the seraphim shook the foundations of the threshold, I wonder what kind of manifestations accompanied the very voice of God. You see, God is not asking Isaiah for a recommendation. 
Okay, he's not saying to Isaiah, you know, Isaiah, I really need someone to go for us. You've been around. You're a networker. You've got a, a, a big platform. Surely there's someone on your contact list that you could recommend. That's not what's going on here. This is a commissioning. This is an ordination. God is the officiant. And it, the ceremony goes like this. The officiant says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And the one being commissioned says, here am I, send me. Question, what about you? What about me? How might God be sending us as messengers sent from God? I believe that the challenge of this sacramental vow still rings out from the voice of God today. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Well, here we are. Send us. Here we are. Send us. Let's pray. Lord, the challenge is great. But you, of course, are greater. You are the author of the challenge. And we, your people, stand ready to serve you. So speak into our hearts, into our lives, that we might be fit for the mission that lies ahead. And we offer ourselves in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond. The harvest is plentiful, the works are few, but our God is mighty to save.